Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome again to the City Club of Cleveland. Uh, as Dan said, I'm Mike Farrell. I'm a partner at Baker & Hostetler. Uh, once again, on behalf of the firm, we're very happy to introduce and sponsor the 2019 High School Debate Championships. Uh, today's debate is the final round of the North Coast District of the National Speech and Debate Association. Um, along with other high school program, excuse me, programming coordinated by the Youth Forum Council, um, th this comprises the significant commitment to youth of the community um, by the City Club. Um, with the support of uh, other community organizations and sponsors, the City Club um, makes it possible for more than 2,000 students to attend forums for free in the past year. Uh, the two young women debating this afternoon will engage in the style of Lincoln-Douglas debate, which emphasizes logic, ethical values, and philosophy. Um, unsurprisingly, this is named after the debates between uh, Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, which, as most of you probably know, focused on the issue of slavery. Um, once again, I'd like to say how honored we are to sponsor this event um, in the memory of Pat. Uh, he was a great guy, a great lawyer, and a great debater. Um, and again, thanks to Sharon and the family for, for being here today, and uh, I think they deserve a round of applause. And so now I'm going to turn the program over to Kayla, who will introduce the resolution and explain the format. On behalf of the Cleveland District, I'd like to begin with a few thank yous. First, thank you to the City Club of Cleveland for their continued support of high school speech and debate in hosting this forum every year. Next, I'd like to extend our immense gratitude to the firm of Baker and Hostetler for sponsoring today's debate in honor of their late partner, Patrick J. Jordan, a highly respected trial, tri trial lawyer at the firm. I know that I speak for all of the high school debate community in thanking both the City Club and Baker and Hostetler for each year providing high school debate with a short time in the spotlight. Today, you'll be watching a Lincoln-Douglas style debate. This is a debate event that focuses on the application of real life, of morals and ethics to real world issues. Each debater will begin with delivering a constructive case. First, they will present a value, which they argue is the most important ideal to strive for in the round. Next, they will provide a value criterion, which acts as a mechanism to achieving their value. The value criterion will be followed by a series of contentions, which will provide the main arguments consisting of logic, evidence, and warrants to their value and criterion. Both, both debaters in today's round will be given 13 minutes of speaking time, three minutes of cross-examination time, and four minutes of preparation time. However, the affirmative has the advantage of providing both the first and last speeches, while the negative has the advantage of longer speeches throughout the round. Throughout each debater's speeches, they will have opportunities to rebut their opponent's points in addition to presenting their own constructive cases. The students who will debate today are Ali Sewell of Hawkins School and T.S. Beast of Kenston High School. Both of these girls are excellent debaters who have worked incredibly hard to be here in front of you today, and both have qualified to the national tournament in June. 
Having debated both of them before, I can assure you that they were both incredibly deserving of this honor. What's more, today is an important day because it is the International Women's Day and also the first high school city club debate championship in which both competitors are female. It is debaters like Ali and Tia who will continue to show young girls just how powerful and capable they truly are. In front of me sits a three-judge panel. Today's three-judge panel consists of Vicki Balzer of Magnificat, Jason Habig of Hathaway Brown School, and Ben Stein of Policy Matters Ohio. The resolution that will be debated today reads, Resolved, the illegal use of drugs ought to be treated as a matter of public health, not of criminal justice. Finally, thank you to the, to the debate community as a whole. Thank you to all the judges, competitors, coaches, and volunteers who repeatedly give up their spare time to make speech and debate possible. This is such an important activity that allows competitors to gain communication skills, confidence, and professionalism, which without your help and support would not be possible. Ali and Tia, congratulations to you both for making it here today. It has been a pleasure and an honor to compete alongside you over the past four years. And with that said, best of luck. Debate Championship. You're listening to the High School Debate Championship at the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Nick Castell from IdeaStream. I'm here with Kennedy Hughes, a senior at Vermillion. We'll be hearing the debate uh, shortly here in a moment. Uh, but before we get started, could you explain a little bit, what are, what are we going to hear from these two debaters? What are they going to be talking about today? So today the resolution deals with the illegal use of drugs and how we consider that in society. So both of these debaters will be applying classic philo philosophical arguments to this modern issue and how society regards that as a whole. So when you say classic philosophical arguments, what, what do you mean by that? What are those? We see the applications of, for example, justice or morality and how we measure those things in a current society. And so we'll be talking throughout this debate here about uh, uh, what is high school debate, how does it work, but right now we're about to get to the debate. All right, if the judges are ready, Tia, you ready? All right, then let's begin. I affirm the resolution resolved, the illegal use of drugs ought to be treated as a matter of public health, not of criminal justice. The CDC defines the difference between public health and criminal justice as public health is the science of protecting and improving the health of people within their communities, while criminal justice is the forceful delivery of justice to those who have committed crimes. Thus, the value for the round must be justice, defined as to give each their due. Self-ownership is the theory that all people have a fundamental ownership over themselves that should almost never be taken away. It is only just to take away someone's self-ownership if they violate another person's rights. Furthermore, the punishment then must be proportional. Thus, the value criterion is promoting self-ownership for two key reasons. First, the only way to prevent domination, according to Robert Nozick, is to allow for individuals to own themselves, their bodies, talents, and abilities. Domination is only illegitimate if each individual is a self-owner and cannot properly be owned by anybody else. Second, the purpose of the government is to protect self-ownership. The government ensures that all people are given rights and then to protect them. They cannot impose ownership, so when the government crosses this boundary, it becomes illegitimate and immoral. For clarification, I offer two observations. First, crimes committed under the influence of drugs, including drunk driving and violence, can and should be criminally prosecuted in the affirmative world. These are criminal offenses in both worlds. Second, because the resolution questions how we should generally treat something, the affirmative burden is to prove that in a majority of cases, the illegal use of drugs should not be punished. Thus, the negative burden must be to prove that in a majority of cases, drug use should be punished. On to contention one. Punishing drug use is an unjust violation of self-ownership. Subpoint A. Drug use in itself is a victimless crime. 
Ever since the war on drugs began, drug policies have led to a 500% increase in incarceration, with 86% of these being victimless drug crimes. According to a professor of economics and crime, Michael Swade, they have not harmed anybody directly by their actions, yet they are still locked in cages. Helping addicts stop hurting themselves is far more just than to lock them up for not harming anybody else. The detrimental impacts of prison are not proportional to drug usage. Once somebody is incarcerated once, they are two-thirds more likely to end up back behind bars and are immediately denied access to housing assistance or food stamps. Only 5% of people with a record receive a callback after a job interview, and that is if they get the interview in the first place. Since drug use is a victimless crime, the criminal justice system unjustly harms users, the government thus is unjustly infringing upon self-ownership. Subpoint B, drug use is not a willful act. The opioid crisis is due to the prescription of legal opioids. The people who are given pain meds become addicted in a legal manner. Once they are addicted, they are stuck in a vicious cycle of drug use with absolutely no help. Instead of the government helping the people that they harmed, they then throw them in jail. Life Extension Magazine explains that those responsible for today's opioid addiction epidemic profit enormously courtesy of the FDA approving and allowing the ongoing sale of opioid prescription drugs, and the FDA fuels this epidemic by approving lower-cost narcotics and hiding how easy it is to develop an addiction, a physical craving. The FDA's lies about opioid addictive potential result in one in five patients being prescribed opioids, which results in 130 opioid deaths per day. When people are being deceived, they cannot act on their own self-ownership. The NIDA reports that 80% of heroin users became addicted due to previous legally prescribed drug usage. This is detrimental since the United Nations recognizes that drug addiction is a complex, multifactorial health disorder characterized by chronic and relapsing nature that is preventable and treatable and is not the result of moral failure or of criminal behavior. There is a need to shift from a criminal justice system to a public health approach. The government made the mistake of harming their citizens. It is now unjust for them to punish the citizens that they affected. Contention two, disproportionality. The criminal justice system disproportionately violates self-ownership by targeting minorities. According to Drug Policy Alliance, nearly 80% of people in prison for drug offenses are black or Latino. Uh, prosecutors are twice as likely to pursue a mandatory minimum sentence for minorities than for white people who committed the exact same offense. Among people who have received this mandatory minimum, 70% of them are minorities. This is an inherent flaw with our criminal justice system's drug sentencing. According to the NAACP, African Americans and white people use drugs at the exact same rate, but the imprisonment rate of African Americans for drug charges is six times that as much. If African Americans were incarcerated, incarcerated at the same rate, the prison population would decline by 40%. While only one in 27 white men will enter the criminal justice system during their lifetime, one in three black men will be imprisoned, and majority of this is due to drug convictions, thus leaving 1.2 million children behind. The lack of parental figures encourages drug use in their children, thus perpetuating the unbreakable cycle of prison and drugs, blocking the next generation's access to self-ownership. Contention three, public health protects self-ownership. Drug abusers want to end their addiction. However, in the negative world, they are scared to act on their own self-ownership due to stigma and punishment. Only in the affirmative world do we actually allow addicts to willfully seek help. Ever since Dayton, Ohio switched to a public health approach to drug usage, overdose deaths have decreased by 65%. Dayton is one of the only cities in the United States seeing a decline since their new approach focuses on harm reduction services, reducing stigma, making treatment available for all, and beginning to treat drug use as a disease and not a crime. 
The NIH then finds that public health approaches decreased drug usage, increased treatment attendance by 147%, and decreased reoffending by 29%. When people are free to act, and they, they end up seeking help without fear. Furthermore, the FRN finds that 40% of addicted offenders receive treatment instead of jail. The United States government would save $12.9 billion. In conclusion, criminalization of drug use violates self-ownership, especially that of racial minorities. It is only through a public health system that we preserve self-ownership and see better treatment results. Thus, I affirm. And I'm ready for cross-examination when Tia is. All right, Ali, are you ready? Yeah. Are all of the judges ready? Okay, let's begin. When can a government justly uh, interfere in someone's actions according to your framework? If they've caused harm to somebody else. Okay, so when you directly violate somebody else's rights, right? Yeah. Okay, so what if I like speed in a school zone? I'm not really violating anybody's rights directly, but I cause such a risk to violate someone's rights that we do restrict that action. Sure, so the thing is here is that the act of driving itself is not actually restricted. You're not causing any harm by directly driving. It's only when you actually are speeding, when you're actually causing harm and putting people at an increased risk right. that we actually restrict it. Wait, it's the on. same with drunk driving, right? Mm -hmm. The reason why we don't allow the reason why we allow for people to drink and the reason why we allow people to drive is because those actions themselves do not cause harm to anybody else. But I, I thought you just told me that you can only interfere when you're directly harming somebody else. It's when you caught it's when you the combined risk ends up being completely outweighing any benefits. Okay, so when I can show that there is a risk of like two things combining and those cause a substantive risk to rights, then we can restrict the it. The right? act within itself has to be what causes harm. Wait, Remember, why? violence that is acted upon while under the influence is still punishable in the affirmative Hold on, Allie, you just told me that driving is not bad and, you know, maybe speeding is bad, but when you put them together in a school zone, we can restrict that. So why does it just have to be the it's one action? It's speeding within itself, remember? It's when you're breaking that law, it's when you're putting people at risk. The okay. act of taking drugs yourself puts nobody at risk but yourself. Okay, cool. Um, when you talk about how this is not a willful act, right? Yeah. So there's always a point in someone's life, like, regardless of if they're legally prescribed drugs, the majority of people that are on drugs chose to go on those drugs, correct? I would say if I'm in an immense amount of pain, if I've broken my arm and a doctor tells me to take a drug, but I'm, not I'm going to take people. it. I'm not You're talking not talking about, about the people that I talk about in my case. No, I'm talking about the majority about? of drug users. This is the majority of drug users. The opioid really? crisis is the biggest crisis that's going on and is the biggest amount of usage in the United States and in the entire world. That's where everybody's dying. That's where all these harms are actually occurring. Okay, so, so what about crimes like manslaughter? slaughter where I don't really intend to hurt anyone. The so thing we just is not that, prosecute The thing that? is the reason why when you actually kill somebody, you're taking that direct action. The thing about this is that you're starting out legally. Murder is never never legal. But when you're actually prescribed a drug and you take that legally, then that's the reason why you're actually going to be, uh, why we're actually seeing an increase in addiction rates and the government then just leaves them out to dry. But that's not what I asked you. I asked you that you're saying the intent is what matters and we should only punish things that have intent. No, so what I'm saying is that because it started out legally, because you were prescribed, because you were actually looking towards yourself and that's what you were told and the government's lying to you okay. and then the government's infringing upon your ability to act on your own self-ownership. Could you tell me what the affirmative world looks like? Like, is it the government that's doing this public health? I mean, sure, the okay, government cool. is the actor. Um, could you tell me what happens in Dayton, Ohio? Is it decriminalized? Is it legalized? It's decriminalized. Okay, so basically, cool. the stance that they take upon is that the police officers, if they find somebody, they're paired with a mental health assi assistant, and they basically just refer people to rehabilitation. What if, if I don't want to go to rehab? Then you don't have to. Really? Yes. Okay, cool. I think that's time. Thank you. This is the high school debate championship at the City Club of Cleveland. We are listening to Ali Sewell of Hawken and Tia Spies of Kenston debate whether illegal drugs should be treated as a matter of public health or of criminal justice. 
I'm Ideastream's Nick Castell. I'm here with Kennedy Hughes of Vermilion, and we're going to be talking you through a little bit about what you're hearing today and, and what high school debate is all about. Could you explain, first of all, we just heard this cross-examination here. What is the point of that in debate? So the point of that in debate is to not only clarify the points that the affirmative had just made in their constructive, but that it is also the first opportunity that the negative has to gain some ground in the debate. The first opportunity the negative has to kind of see any holes or point out any key flaws that they notice in the first speaking of the constructive. And so I guess we should say that the affirmative is arguing here that drugs should be treated as a matter of public health and the negative is saying, no, they shouldn't, basically. Yes, exactly. So you mentioned before, uh, th they're challenging the constructive. What is a constructive? So the constructive is what you just saw Ali give at the very beginning of the debate, where she gives her contentions, her key ideas of what her arguments are, and that's also when she presents her framework and how she believes the what philosophy should be used to measure the resolution. So as you are presenting your arguments here and challenging your opponent's arguments, how do you actually win a, a Lincoln-Douglas debate? Um, it kind of depends on how you win a Lincoln-Douglas debate. Um, that can either be, be being sure to cover everything given in a contention, that can be focusing on the key arguments made in the round, or um, just generally being more appealing to the judges. So do you have to get the judges to agree with you that you're right? Or do they have to believe in their hearts the argument that you're making? They don't. And actually, that's what's great about debate is because the judges don't necessarily have to believe what you're saying, and that doesn't necessarily have to become their opinion. It's just who has the better ability to argue that kind of idea. And so as we're listening to these arguments, they're really talking about these ideas of rights of, of you know, what role does the government have? Why do you focus on these big, sort of heady ideas? Uh, we focus on these because we recognize that those are what is, like, these kind of ideas of rights are what is what are going to affect people the most and how that has a direct influence on the everyday lives of any citizen. So um, as a debater, do you pick one side or the other and argue it throughout the whole season, or do you get to try out both sides of an argument? Um, you're actually what side you argue changes each round you debate. So normally at a tournament with four rounds, you debate two on the affirmative side and two on the negative. So you've got to know both sides of the argument in and out. Yes. Do you often find that uh, if you just agree with one side more than the other, it's kind of hard to argue something that you don't really believe? It is. It becomes difficult, but with the amount of research that you do, it becomes even more difficult to make a decision of your own opinion when you have done research of both sides. Well, we're about to return to the debate. So just as an overview of what I'm about to do, I'm going to read you my negative case, and then we will move on to address Allie's case. All right, Allie, are you ready? Yeah. Are all of my judges ready? Okay, let's begin. I negate the resolution resolved. The illegal use of drugs ought to be treated as a matter of public health, not criminal justice. I agree to the value of justice. But the most suitable criterion by which to achieve justice is maximizing societal welfare. Societal welfare encompasses all of the dues a government is obligated to provide for their citizens, including rights, health, and order. The best way to achieve justice for each person is to create a society in which their dues can be fulfilled. My sole argument is that the criminal justice system provides certain indispensable benefits in dealing with the use of illegal drugs. 
there are three points to this argument. First, the criminal justice system creates accountability. I agree with my opponent that rehabilitating drug users is an incredibly important goal. However, the best way to do so is with the involvement of criminal justice. A review of five independent meta-analyses concluded that using criminal justice measures to enforce rehabilitation was found to reduce crime rates by 35%. A combination of criminal justice and treatment is most effective. The National Institute on Drug Addiction echoes this. Quote, combining prison and community-based treatment for addicted offenders reduces the risk of both recidivism and relapse to drug use. A 2009 study in Baltimore, Maryland, for example, found that opioid-addicted prisoners who started methadone treatment in prison had better outcomes than those who started after release. AF leaves drug addicts on their own. Only through criminal justice do we actually help them help themselves. Second, the criminal justice system is fair. This is true for three reasons. The first is that it is bound by the law. The distribution of dues cannot be left to individuals, but rather must come through an organized structure as opposed to the arbitrary exercise of power. The rule of law creates order, and without order, no justice can exist. Without the criminal justice system, the distribution of dues is completely arbitrary. The second is that it has due process. The criminal justice system uniquely allows for checks and balances, like judges that we elect, or a jury of our peers, the ability to defend oneself if wrongfully accused or appeal if wrongfully convicted. This process eliminates arbitrary punishment and puts the power back in the hands of the citizen. But finally, it gives each their due. In either world, drug use is still illegal. If government were to allow crime to go unpunished or only apply the law when it wants to, the legitimacy of the law is violated and loses its meaning. Without real backing, no system of law can create justice. And finally, my third point is that the criminal justice system is necessary. It is critical to maintain some legal regulations on the use of drugs instead of throwing the criminal justice system out entirely. For instance, age restrictions. Numerous studies prove that the earlier the onset of drug use, the greater the likelihood that a person will develop a drug problem. Emory University finds that when drugs like marijuana are decriminalized, the usage in adolescence increases, meaning that more kids use drugs in the affirmative world. The illegal use of drugs also causes more crime, whether it be that 48% of those who commit murder do so on drugs, or that hundreds of thousands of people are killed by impaired driving each year. The best way to prevent millions of kids in our societies from becoming addicts, the best way to punish those who violate dues, like killing somebody while high, is by maintaining criminal consequences for the illegal use of drugs. At the end of the day, remember, by negating, we maintain the unique benefits of the criminal justice system that AF abolishes. But any possible benefits of the public health system can also exist in my NAG world. Because the open hand of public health must work with the strong arm of criminal justice. I'm proud to negate. Let's move on to Ali's case. I agree to the value of justice, but I have a couple problems with the value criterion of self-ownership. The first is that we can still restrict actions when they don't directly violate someone's rights. For instance, if somebody were to speed in a school zone, driving itself is not bad, yes, but when you combine those two things, like affirming when you do drugs and then kill somebody, when you combine two bad things and result in a crime, we do restrict that action. But then secondly, self-ownership is not absolute. When my autonomy comes into conflict with somebody else's, we have to maximize the well-being of society. 
So she gives us two observations. The first is that crimes committed after doing drugs should still be prosecuted. That's a problem for my opponent because she says that we should not punish these people. If we're still punishing these people, but just for a different crime, she doesn't access her impacts. But then secondly, remember that when you combine two bad things and result in a crime, that's still going to be up for debate. But then she says that the AF is the majority of the cases. The resolution very specifically says this should be treated as a matter of public health, not criminal justice, not criminal justice. The first contention is that it is an unjust violation of self-ownership. The first subpoint is that this is a victimless crime. So I have a couple of responses here. First of all, it's not a victimless crime. Remember that if my parents are drug addicts, these children are much more likely to become drug addicts themselves. Think of all those children that are born addicted to drugs because their parents were. Think about that 48% of murders are committed literally while on drugs. This is by, uh, for sure not a victimless crime. But even so, even if it were just a victimless crime, it is still a crime. And if we choose not to punish crimes anymore, then we have absolutely no rule of law. Let's go to the second subpoint that this is not a willful act. First of all, she's definitely cherry picking opioid uh, prescriptions. There are far more drug, addic uh, drug addicted users than just opioid restrictions. But second, I actually solve for this because we can rehabilitate them through prison and criminal justice measures that makes this better. She doesn't do anything. But then remember that the intent doesn't make it not a crime. For instance, manslaughter. Nobody has the intent to kill somebody when they commit manslaughter. But that does not mean that we don't punish them. Then let's go to the second contention, which is disproportionality. She tells me that the government, which she says is inherently racist, is going to be running public health. Racism exists in both worlds. This is not a debate about racism. This is a debate about how to treat illegal drugs. And so yes, we both have racism in our world. Literally the only difference between our worlds is that I have due process and restrictions on what the government can do because they are bound by the law. But then remember that legalizing drugs actually harms children and minorities. Also recognize that 99% of people that are in prison for drug crimes are there for drug trafficking, not drug use. She's not solving for anything. But then finally on this third contention, that public health self, uh, helps self-ownership. She talks about Dayton, Ohio. This is decriminalized. And literally nowhere in the entire world has ever not used uh, criminal justice in conjunction with public health. It has never happened. For instance, in Dayton, they still use criminal justice measures, like they bring police officers in to help with the uh, institution of public health. They haven't done that because it is necessary to keep criminal justice. Thus, I strongly negate. All right, is everybody ready? Yes. Tia, you ready? I'm ready. All right, then let's begin. So let's start on your value criterion of societal welfare. No so basically, is this, like, what does this best for society look like? Sorry? So basically, you're just trying to benefit society, right? I think that we should, yeah. It's, since rights come into conflict all the time, sure. and we can never protect anybody's sure. individual rights at this all the same time, sure. I think we should maximize societal welfare. So maximize societal welfare. Does this look like I can basically benefit 90% and basically no. harm the other 10%? Why no, not? I'm benefiting not. society. No, okay. So the problem is that societal welfare also includes rights. Like, society would not be well if nobody had individual rights. All right, so basically you're telling me that the purpose of the government now is to protect people's rights and see what happens when they come into conflict. Yeah, I think that is the purpose of the government. All yeah. right, awesome. So second of all, also, so when they come into conflict, sure. basically how are you actually going to solve for this? How are you all actually right. going to decide what's going to be held above another? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. 
through the criminal justice system. That's literally what sure. they're there You know for. what? Let's talk about the criminal justice system okay, for a cool. second. You yeah. talk about how basically all of these laws are in place and how we need to actually ensure that they're going to be upheld, right? Yes. Yeah, sure. Are there such things as unjust laws? Yeah, sure. But the way to correct <clears throat> for unjust laws is through the criminal justice system. So as if slavery is legal, it's, it's okay as long as we're going to fix it in the long run. But Ali, we solved for slavery through <clears throat> the criminal justice system. But the thing system. is, is that wasn't that part of the criminal justice system in the first place? Isn't that isn't that why we have laws today that actually have discriminated against like LGBT Q community and things like that, but those laws are still laws. Wait, do you I'm think confused. that you should uphold them? Wait, I'm confused. What do those two things have to do? With I'm talking each other? about unjust laws. If there yeah. are laws that are very discriminatory, should we still okay. be allowed to so enforce them? So here's the them? thing. If there is an unjust law, you have like two courses of action, right? Like you personally could violate that law or the government can take systematic action to get rid of that law. I say that the systematic action is infinitely better because it's permanent and it's enforced. But why is that solely unique can in I, your can world? I, can I explain? Because if we just all use our individual biases against each other with no backing of like a higher order of rule of law, then everybody's just using their individual biases. There's nothing to right. tie us to not discriminate against All right, against sure. People. Let's actually talk about that for a sure. second. In your second point, you basically talk about when crime goes unpunished, that's really bad. Yes. However, yeah. if I'm speeding one mile over the speed limit, I'm breaking a law, right? Yeah, sure. All right, then, and if a police officer doesn't pull me over, is this all of a sudden going to cause a collapse of the criminal justice system? No, it's not that, like, you are violating the law. It's that the government just chooses to arbitrarily not enforce the law for, that, like, That really didn't answer my question, reasons. though, right? If I'm still breaking the law and, you're, and the police didn't actually persecute me or prosecute me, under your under your argument, you're saying that this is basically going to cause like a collapse, and the law is going to have no teeth. Okay, listen. But if you're just talking about literally just one person driving, I'm talking about an entire society not abiding by this incredibly important drug law. However, I do think that you should punish that person, but it doesn't mean you have to throw them in jail for the rest of their life. It's just that you have to enforce the punishments that are set in the rule of law. All right, but are these punishments always just? So they have to oh be proportional, correct? I think that they are not always just. But, but can, the only they way that we solve for injustice is by abiding by the rule of law, giving people due process, and abiding by the punishments that we have already set. All right. This is the high school debate championship at the City Club of Cleveland on 90.3 WCPN. We were just listening to Ali Sewell of Hawken cross-examine Tia Spies of Kenston. I'm Ideastream's Nick Castell. I'm here with Kennedy Hughes, a senior at Vermilion. And I wanted to ask you, you've got a, a yellow legal pad here, and you're, you're taking notes in black and red pen. And as I'm looking out in the audience here, I see a bunch of other people doing the same thing. What, what is this? Could you explain what you're doing here? So this is what we would call in the debate community flowing, where you basically write down every argument that has been brought up in the round, and your like how those arguments have been addressed or any arguments that you think of to address those points. So you're looking at like point for point how this debate is, is going basically? Yeah, exactly. Do you expect, I mean, when you're looking at uh, the topic before the debate even begins, do you have a sense of what points each side is going to be touching on? Oh, certainly, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, how do you know that already? Um, well, so other topics we've brought up, like we have had military aid to authoritarian regimes. That has been a debate topic in the past. And I know upon immediately seeing that resolution, there were multitudes of arguments that it could be brought up on either side. On this, you could easily talk about like the benefits of public health and just running a case entirely based on how good public health is, or on the negative, talking about how important criminal justice is. Do you have a preference? Uh, do you prefer to take the affirmative or the negative? Do you feel like one side is easier or better than the other? Um, I think this is one of the unique resolutions where neither side has a really like 
has more of an advantage over the other. I think that there are both clear advantages, like there are equal advantages to either side. And I should say the issue being debated today is whether illegal drugs should be treated as a matter of public health or a matter of criminal justice. Could you uh, go through a little bit, like what other topics do you debate? They all seem like they're pretty, pretty current and things that are, you know, on the, on the public agenda, you know, out in the real world. We do try to like keep debate topics into what it has like been happening recently. So it kind of forces debaters to look at their modern world through the kind of classical philosophical side. So like I said, we have debated um, giving military aid to authoritarian regimes on behalf of the United States. We've debated free speech on college campuses, uh, universal basic incomes, like all of these general ideas that have come up recently in politics that we've seen, we've debated. So have you ever in debating a topic actually found that you changed your mind about it? You thought one thing going in, but once you learned about it, you you came to believe something new? Most definitely. I think it's really easy to um, have a kind of like predisposed opinion when you see the resolution on like a blank piece of paper. But when you go into the hours of research that you have to do as a debater, then that really can change your mind. Where do you go for research? Um, it's really various. Like uh, you can do a quick Google search to do uh, research. You can also go to like law firms like Hein Online or JSTOR and look for like more legal resources there. Do you? Uh, I, I notice that sometimes people are citing studies or other research. Are there any standards for like what you can cite and what is maybe not seen as a legitimate source? We may need to get back to that question because we are going to return now to the debate. All right, so a brief off-time roadmap before I begin. I'm going to be first addressing my opponent Tia's case, and then I'm going to be going on to defend my own case. All right, is everyone ready? Tia, ready? All right, then let's begin. So we both agree on the value of justice, which is to give each their due. But my opponent's value criterion of societal welfare doesn't actually uphold this. Is that first of all, when you're actually looking towards societal welfare, you're looking at a utilitarian calculus. This is basically saying, as long as we can max do the best for the majority, it doesn't matter what happens to the minority. This is really harmful because this doesn't give minorities actually the justice that they deserve. And second of all, in cross-examination, my opponent actually admitted that the sole reason that the government exists is to protect rights and to protect your self-ownership. Thus, when we're looking towards the government as the actor, we're going to want to look towards who's going to protect the self-ownership the best. Let's move on to her contention one, talking about the benefits of the criminal justice system, system and the first one is going to be accountability. Is that first of all, is that punishment is not actually proportional to the crime. So as if you remember what I said in my case, is that once you actually go to jail, you actually have a 5% chance of getting a job after that, and it's going to lead to perpetual drug usage throughout your entire life. This isn't actually proportional. Second of all, look towards the status quo. Everything that my opponent's advocating for is actually in this complete utopia that doesn't happen. Right now, only 11% of prisons actually have rehabilitation. And in addition, you have to commit a crime first in order to get this rehabilitation in the first place. If you actually want to allow people to actually go out and willfully seek help and not have to go to prison and get a criminal record, you're going to want to vote affirmative. Third of all, actually, Healthline has actually found that the more people that go to prison for drug, uh, drug abuse, actually, we actually see an increase in overdoses because we're actually taking it away before, taking drugs away before people actually want to quit. Let's move on to the second argument. She talks about how the criminal justice system is fair. The criminal justice system is inherently racist, and it's in, a lot of times it isn't actually fair. First of all, remember how I brought up slavery, Jim Crow laws. All of these are laws that under my opponent's, under my opponent's world, she basically says it's okay that they were actually enforced as long as we fix them in the long run. I'm saying that th because this is an unjust law, we actually look towards fixing it now. That's why we need to decriminalize it in both affirmative. And third of all, she talks, second of all, she talks about how like, crime goes unpunished and everything. But remember, 
speeding, if I speed two miles over the speed limit, and if I'm not pulled over, I'm still breaking the law, and I'm not being punished for it. But you don't see the criminal justice system collapsing. Onto her third argument, she talks about legal regulation. However, first of all, turn this argument against her. See that the usage of in children actually goes down extremely well when you look towards public health. Look towards Portugal. We actually see that every single age group of children, when you actually um, in force of public health, you're actually going to see that children use drugs significantly less. This is going to be extremely important because if you're looking at her utilitarian calculus, I'm going to outweigh. So now let's move on to my case, onto my valid criterion of self-ownership. She basically talks about this whole preventative argument. I address this in cross-examination. Remember, driving in itself is not illegal. It's only when you take the action to harm somebody else when it actually becomes illegal. The same here is the, is the same thing here with the legal drug usage. It's that when you actually are using the drugs, you're not harming anybody else. It's only when you take an action to harm somebody else that it becomes illegal. And I'm advocating for that, that we should still be able to, that we should still be able to punish people for drunk driving, for causing violence. This is non-unique. Second of all, she talks about maximizing well-being. However, you can't maximize well-being if you are oppressing some people in your society. So I'll go on to contention one. So my opponent basically just says that we're still increasing the amount of children who are going to use drugs. This doesn't address my argument whatsoever. It's the inherent, um, it's the inherent use of drug use, any drug uses that is actually not causing harm to anybody else. Second of all, she dropped a really important part, which is talking about the proportionality of the justice system. We're actually seeing is that this, it, the punishment is not proportional to this crime. If you were even going to buy that, this is um, not victimless. So the full that through the round. Let's move on to the subpoint B, talking about a willful action. My opponent said that I'm cherry picking opioids. However, remember, we're looking towards, if she's basically all of our evidence is talking about how opioids actually cause harm to other people. If we're going to see that the opioid crisis was caused by the government themselves, thus taking away people's self-ownership, we have to see that the government shouldn't be able to punish people that they caused the harm to. That's the whole intent argument. That's the, and also, secondly, rehabilitation through prison doesn't work. You have to commit a crime first. It's, it's insanely unjust. On to contention two, talking about disproportionality. My opponent basically says that the public health system is also racist. However, I'd argue that it's extremely more detrimental to unjustly punish people than to disproportionately help people. Because then you're not locking people in prison for years at a time for something that they shouldn't have happened. On to contention three, she basically said that it's decriminalized. That's exactly what I'm advocating for. Decriminalization, that all flows affirmative. You're listening to the High School Debate Championship at the City Club of Cleveland on 90.3 WCPN. I'm Nick Castell from IdeaStream. I'm here with Kennedy Hughes, a senior at Vermillion. We just heard Ali Sewell of Hawken delivering an affirmative argument. Uh, the, the issue on the table here is whether the illegal use of drugs should be treated as a matter of public health or of criminal justice. I wanted to ask, and we had uh, gotten to this a little bit before, um, and I'm actually, I'm sorry, I'm now I'm forgetting the question I was going to ask. So let me go on to something else. Can you explain how much like research, you know, do you really have to do to be like well prepared for a debate? Um, to be well prepared, a lot of research does go into being a specifically. I know a Lincoln Douglas debater because not only do you have to be well versed in the evidence side of the debate, but you also have to have cards prepared for your philosophical side. Um, and so it can be hours upon hours to be prepared for just a single tournament. And now I do remember the question I was going to ask before. As you're citing your sources or looking for, you know, sources of research, like what's the standard? How do you know that you've actually got sources that are going to be persuasive in a debate? Well, first you look for sources that have re like reliable you know, uh, kind of citations. But what tends to happen in the debate community is that not always uh, reliable sources are used, but that can also be a place of where a debater can gain, can gain ground on another by pointing out the flaws in their evidence. So I see. So if you go to your cross-examination and you ask them to cite their sources or point out that there's something wrong with them, that can help you out. Exactly. 
Well, we're going to return to the debate right now and hear the negative argument. All right, um, just an overview of what I'm going to do in this speech. I am going to be addressing, um, sorry, I'm going to be addressing my case, and then I'm going to move over to Ali's case, and then we're going to talk about the most important issues for the round that you can vote on. All right, so let's talk about my case. Ali, are you ready? Yes. Judges? Awesome. So we agree on justice. What she says to societal welfare is that it doesn't give each their due because we have to protect rights. I agree. First of all, rights come into conflict. You can't protect everyone's rights at the same time. That means you have to protect as many people's rights as you can. But also recognize, literally the only way we protect rights is with the criminal justice system. Let's go to the first contention, subpoint A. So she doesn't really respond to the things that I say in this contention. I say that five independent meta-analyses, like of all uh, prison systems and all rehab systems, says that using both reduces crime by 35%. She says that the Punishment is not proportional because like, they don't have a job. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that if you use legal enforcement to make people go to rehab and make themselves get better, that actually solves for the illness and the harm that she's talking about. But then she says that the status quo that I'm talking about is utopia because 11% of prisons have rehab. But realize that first of all, yes, some of this was about prison, but also second of all, I was just talking about legally enforced rehabilitation. That does not mean that it has to be through prison. That just means that you have to go to rehabilitation wherever it happens to be. She also says that going to prison e equals more overdoses, but if we can solve for the root cause, which is addiction, then you won't see that. The second subpoint is that the criminal justice system is fair. She doesn't respond to the three reasons that I actually give you that it's fair. The first and probably the most important is that it is bound by the law. In her world, people can just use their individual biases to discriminate against each other with no overarching power that says don't discriminate against each other or you will get punished. I also say that it has due process. In her world, you can't appeal your drug conviction. You can't defend your drug conviction. You can't have a jury of your peers or a judge that's elected by you. You either go to rehab or you go to prison and you can't fight it. And then I say that, Yes, if you commit a crime, the government ought to punish you because the government just can't pick and choose when to enforce the law. She says that it's inherently racist and she talks about slavery and that we need to fix it now. But remember what I said, that if we just fix it now by not abiding by it, it's very temporary. But if the system actually goes through its systematic fixing like we did with slavery, it's always permanent. We don't have slavery anymore, I notice. And then, so let's talk about subpoint C, which is that the criminal justice system is necessary. She talks about Portugal. I'm so glad she talked about about Portugal because Portugal goes to my side. In Portugal, what happens is that the police take you to a panel of three judges and those judges tell you to go to rehab. And if you don't go to rehab, they force you to go to rehab. That goes to my side. Let's go over to my opponent's uh, side of this round. So on her value criterion of promoting self-ownership, she says basically that uh, like when you take driving and then you put speeding into it, it's bad. That is exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying that yes, when you have drugs and then you commit a murder while on drugs, like 48% of people do, then yes, we should attack the root cause of that problem, which is drugs. Also, remember that on this first subpoint about victimless crimes, that it's not just committing violent crimes. It's also that you know if you're a drug addict, your children are far more likely to become drug addicts, or that if you uh, are driving drunk, yes, you are far more likely to kill somebody else. Um, she says that the inherent use of drugs does not cause harm, but we're talking about the use of drugs in a context of what you do with them. 
Remember that she drops my responses to her two observations that says, we are talking about either criminal justice or public health and not any combination of the two in her world. And also that these crimes that are committed uh, in both worlds uh, should be uh, weighed as well. Then let's go to the subpoint B. She drops the most important part of this, which is that the intent doesn't matter. For instance, if I commit manslaughter, I should be punished for manslaughter. I didn't mean to kill anybody, but that does not mean that I didn't deprive somebody else of their dues and ought to be punished. Then let's go to the second contention. She again drops the most important part, which is that 99% of people in prison currently for drugs are not there for drug use. If she's going to try to solve for racism, which she says exists in both of our worlds, she's not going to do it. Because only 1% of people in prison for drugs are in, dr are in prison for drug use, which is what she's talking about. She also says that uh, racism exists in both of our worlds, but it's okay. But remember what I said, that the only difference between our worlds then is that in my world, the government is required to abide by like anti-discriminatory laws or required to abide by laws that give people due process so that they can fix that injustice. And then finally on contention uh, three, she talks about how she is arguing for decriminalization. Remember that that goes to me like Portugal. Now I do just want to recognize something before I do it, go into my KBIs, that my opponent has a very compelling narrative about children and racism and you're probably going to hear that in the next speech. And you know what? I can't give that to you. Why? Because her side has literally never been implemented in the entire history of the world. My side has problems, yes, but it's real. Let's go into what I can give you. The first key voting issue are real concrete facts. She's going to give you facts, but all of them are from my world. 99% of people in prison are not there for drug use. Five independent meta-analyses concluded that when you use both criminal justice and public health, that's when you actually solve for addiction. I tell you that we absolutely need some legal restrictions to make sure that children don't get addicted and cause that perpetual cycle. But the second key voting issue and the other thing I can give you are certain inherent indispensable benefits of the criminal justice system that you can't just throw out. I say that the criminal justice system is the only thing that we have that is bound by the law, that gives people due process in order to fight injustice, and actually gives people their due. Yes, the government can't just pick and choose when to enforce the laws. That's when we have oppression. So yes, I recognize that my opponent's side lends itself to a beautiful story. But at the end of the day, when we are discussing policy, and we are discussing policy, you cannot vote with your heart. You have to vote with your head. I negate. This is the high school debate championship at the City Club of Cleveland on 90.3 WCPN. We just heard Tia Spies from Kenston delivering the negative argument to the following resolution. The illegal use of drugs ought to be treated as a matter of public health, not of criminal justice. I'm sitting here with uh, Kennedy Hughes of Vermilion. She's a senior there. Could you explain for me here, uh, we've heard debaters at different points in this debate telling the judges, uh, this is how you should judge my argument. Uh, why do you do that? Do the judges often buy what you're telling them? Um, it is kind of like, code of LD that they do follow either one of the frameworks provided by one of the debaters. Um, so why you have to convince the judges to weigh with your framework is because you have connected your framework into how your case operates. And so you want your judge to look through that specific lens. So you want them to judge you sort of on your own terms. Exactly. Okay, now we're about to hear uh, uh, more of the debate. 
All right, so brief off-time roadmap of what I'm about to do is I'm about to go over the framework debate, and then I'm going to go over the key voting issues for the round, which is the uh, reasons why you're gonna vote for your decision. So is everybody ready? Tia, you ready? And let's begin. So let's start off on what my opponent said in her last round. She talked about how the narrative is compelling on the affirmative world. The reason why the narrative is so compelling is because the negative world has never, ever worked. The criminal justice system hasn't worked. That's why we see all these racist impacts. That's why we see all the impacts in the affirmative world. So let's look for a change. So look towards the framework to begin with. Onto the value criterion of societal welfare. Is that first of all, this still doesn't give each their due. Societal welfare is looking at the majority of people, not the minority. It basically is going to justify oppression of people as long as the majority is happy and as long as society on net is happy. This doesn't give each their due. Second of all, my opponent dropped this in her last speech, but she admitted that the government must protect rights and self-ownership. And basically, the self-ownership is going to be the only way that we actually tell you when we are allowed to infringe upon on rights. This is in when they actually come into direct harm and direct conflict. So now switch to the value criterion of self-ownership. So basically, what she, my opponent keeps bringing up is she brings up this whole speeding argument. However, I've already addressed this. Remember that the act of driving in itself is not illegal because it doesn't harm anybody. It's only when you're speeding when you're actually going to harm somebody. The same thing here is that the, the usage of drug in itself doesn't harm anybody else. When you're violent towards another person, when you harm another person, that's when you're allowed to punish and you can still punish in the affirmative world. So regardless of which framework you actually choose, I'm gonna outweigh on a utilitarian calculus, which is my opponent's framework and also with self ownership. So the first key voting issue is going to be the whole idea of voluntary, voluntary rehab versus the criminal justice system. Remember, the criminal justice system has already failed. I've given you tons of statistics that have actually proved this. Is that first of all is that forced therapeutic leverage, none of this actually works. This leads to an increase in overdoses and an increase in uh, recidivism rates. This is extremely important because my opponent's just perpetuating the idea that people who actually harm themselves and you act on their own self-ownership do not deserve to be members of our society. Second of all, she dropped this entire statistic, which is basically going to tell you that uh, when we actually switch towards a public health framework, we see that 147% increase in rehabilitation. This means that more people are actually going to go towards rehabilitation, which means on net, I'm going to have the bigger impact. Second of all, she talks about how I actually provide no real world evidence. In Portugal, in Dayton, the police just refer you to places. They don't force you to go anywhere. All of these impacts have actually been proven to happen in the affirmative world. And we also see a decrease in children usage. We stop it at the root and we stop this issue from ever occurring in the long run. My second key voting issue is going to be this whole idea of the willful action. So my opponent misconstrued my argument in my last speech and basically dropped the actual one, which is telling you that the FDA has actually caused this opioid crisis. Remember, when you are legally prescribed something and you become legally addicted and then um, when you are taken off that prescription and then you go and act because you are now addicted, which has been proven to be a, a mental health disorder, basically the government's now just going to punish you for it. They're going to lock you up in prison. This is extremely unjust. On to my third and final key voting issue is going to be the idea of proportional punishment. Remember that 86% of people who are in jail for drug crimes have been absolutely victimless drug crimes. So basically, the constant cycle of being labeled a criminal, having no housing loans, having no food stamps, not being able to provide your free family is not a proportional treatment and not proportional punishment, and thus should not you should vote affirmative. Great round. I'm so I'm Dan Malthrop with the City Club. I want to uh, congratulate both Tia Spies and, and Alison Sewell on a really just incredible debate. Ladies and gentlemen, please give them another round of applause.
Our judges right now are um, doing their tallies and uh, figuring out exactly who will be crowned winner. Um, and uh, But in City Club fashion, we like to reserve some moment for uh, questions from the audience. Um, if you have questions for either of these young women, um, we invite them now. Uh, my colleague Bliss Davis has a microphone. If you raise your hand, she'll find her way over to you. You can ask them about the topic at hand if you like, or you can also ask them um, other questions. But I want to, um, so when we, when we, when we did the coin toss, ladies, um, step up for a second here. When we did the coin toss, um, uh, Allison, you won, uh, you won the toss and chose to argue the affirmative. Tia, I want to ask you, um, were you hoping to argue the affirmative or the negative today? Um, I do believe what I said just then, that the affirmative has the more compelling narrative. Um, but I also do think that the negative is just more logically sound um, in that you can't just throw out an entire criminal justice system just because a few laws are enforced badly. So I think that I am kind of happy that I got negative, actually. Okay. Allison, what about you? I mean, you, you, you got to choose. Was that a tough choice for you? Um, I really like the, uh, the affirmative. I mean, I really do think that both sides are very persuasive. They have a very clear narrative. And the affirmative, I was just more drawn towards because I... Um, I've, I just, I've worked really hard on that case. I've worked really hard on both cases, and I just had kind of a gut feeling, honestly, that uh -huh. that's what I was going to choose. So, so um, let me ask you, though, uh, Allison, of the, you just spent the, you both have spent the last hour picking each other's arguments apart. Um, which of Tia's arguments did you think was strongest? I think. Judges, you need to close your ears. <laughs> um, all right, so honestly, her like her argument, basically talking about like the rule of law and everything, I do believe that that is a very strong argument. And um, it's very compelling. It has a very clear narrative. And it does talk about how the uh, criminal justice system does have to be legitimate, which is extremely important. Thank and you. Tia, what about, what about Allison's arguments? Um, I really like the victimless crime argument. I also had that in my app at both states and here. Uh, you know, it's obviously up for debate, as we did. But I think that it's a really, <laughs> a really strong idea. Wonderful. Um, I want to ask you both about um, just more broadly what being a part of a debate a debate community has meant to both of you. I mean, you spoke to it a little bit before, prior to the program actually beginning. But um, Allison, could you start a little? Sure. So debate has provided me with probably my favorite experiences in all of high school. I've been able to be a part of a team with my uh, Lincoln Douglas teammates, and they're sitting right over there, um, and uh, getting to grow up watching pe people who are older than me kind of hope to be at this point, and also getting to meet pe people from other schools, getting to reunite with Tia, things like that. It's pretty much been the best experience of my high school career. Tia, what about you? I, I completely agree. Um, I think it was the people that was the biggest thing. I mean, duo people are great. Um, but <laughs> um, I think that being in a community where people are so willing to openly discuss these incredibly, like, kind of uh, divisive issues, um, that if you go to a lunch table at a tournament, people will just be debating communism completely seriously. And <laughs> it's true. It's yeah. True. And, and meeting people like Allie and like all the people I thanked. Um, and coming from a place where I didn't really think that I had a chance to be at some be somewhere like this, that I I never would have thought I had a chance um, three years ago. But because of those people, um, I am, and I'm I'm so grateful for them. Ready to go? We have a we're wait. Are we ready to crown a? No. Do we have a a winner? I'm sorry, you're looking at me strangely. Like yeah, like this is usually this this leads to like somebody being crowned. 
Crown Victor. Okay. All right. So, um, Mike Farrell, you want me to just do it? Mike Farrell, come up here. I need, I need, just come on up. Um, so it's my pleasure, honor, and uh, and responsibility, and and all of that to announce that the winner of the high school debate championship is Tia Spies. Go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I gave her. Yeah. yeah. Can I have the other one? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. And um, and all of you skilled in the process of elimination will have figured out that Allison Tool is the runner-up. I want to congratulate both of these really talented young women. Congratulations. Congratulations. And that brings us to the end of our forum. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being a part of this. I want to thank Baker Hostetler again for their sponsorship of this annual event. Um, and I want to thank the teachers who participated throughout the careers of these young ladies to help prepare them for this moment. Um, and as well as thank all of their colleagues on the debate teams and debate societies. Um, ladies and gentlemen, have a wonderful International Women's Day. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.